Okay, please, if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, I'll be reading Luke chapter 10, verses 21 to 24. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then... Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Father, my prayer is that none of us in this room die without seeing and rejoicing in the truth of Jesus, the Savior. Would you give us the grace that enables us to believe such wild things like we find in this text. To the glory of your Son forever, I pray. Amen. There are experiences in life that leave us stunned at times. Just frozen. It it could be the stunning ending of A game in which your favorite team is playing in the very last seconds. A breakaway touchdown. A buzzer beater. A walk-off home run. And you lose. You're frozen. You know that experience? Most of us do, even ladies. But that's nothing like standing before the words of Jesus, stunned to have won salvation somehow. And then the next day, but often sometimes it's a decade later, to stand before His words, frozen at how he says you got saved. You want an instant replay. I mean, did that guy actually make that catch? I'm gonna, I gotta see it. Jesus, or, or in, in the Bible, all over the place, does it actually say that? 
Isn't there a loophole to the words that seem to be so clear? That's what we're faced with this morning. And I will contend that, that ultimately, and often not easily, it is the place where every believer wants to go in what we're going to see. Because what we see is at the core of Jesus' joy. Let's go to the text. Luke 10. Start with verse 21. Here, the Lord Jesus is exploding with joy over the reality of the truth that He prays here. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And He said, just stop for a moment. This right here is the only place in the New Testament where it specifically says Jesus rejoiced. And so, what is He so thrilled about? The answer is what He says. The answer is the content that, that, that He's going to pray. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and He said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. Here in our text, Jesus rejoiced over God's sovereign grace in saving people like these 72 disciples in the context who were before Him. He rejoiced. Okay. Here's a stunning point. Here's the walk-off home run. He rejoiced that God has hidden the saving truth of Jesus to the wise and learned from them. I mean, that's the context. Remember the context. The 72 were on mission to towns. They come back. Even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, I know. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Yes, I'm defeating him. And then he says, don't miss the main point, guys. Rejoice even more that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, with joy, says, I thank you that you have hidden these truths to the wise. But you've revealed them literally to babies. Napios is the word. Little children. To babies. You've hidden them, I think in the immediate context he means, from the religious elite and the cultural elite in first century Israel. You've hidden it from the scribes, the professional scholars, and, and those who are Pharisees, that type of person who so dedicates their life to their religiosity and think that they're superior to others. You have hidden the truths. Not just they couldn't see it. God acted to hide it. 
And then look at the 72. This is what he's doing. Fishermen, carpenters, blue-collar workers, some tax collectors, low on the social totem pole. You've revealed it. These guys get it. They see the truth as you have revealed it to them. Notice what we see here. Notice God, who is a holy trinity. Jesus, the Son. In the Holy Spirit, Luke says, rejoiced and prayed to His Father. And prayed what? That He is so happy about the truth of God's sovereign election in choosing people to be saved. Why is he so happy about it? The answer's at the end of verse 21. Look at it. And yes, Father, for, here's his answer, such was your gracious will. His answer is, see the word for, it means because such, meaning what he's just been talking about. The kingdom. Your guys' names are written in heaven. I've defeated Satan. For you. Not for everybody. Thank you, Father, that you hide them and that you reveal them. You hide from many, you reveal to many. And you're in control. I thank you. Why? Because you're doing it this way, he says, Literally in the Greek, it should probably read this way. Because this was pleasing to you. It's really what... Jesus is so thrilled that His Father is pleased to save people this way. That's why He rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And that's why often, much more than standing in the stands at a Notre Dame-USC game in 1974 when the two best teams in the country are going at it. And my team is winning 24 to nothing. And then in the next 16 minutes of game time, the score read, still, Notre Dame 24, USC 56. That's why it's still embedded in me. Stunned. And this is stunning. I remember I was ten years in as a Christian. I can remember standing in the hallway before the bathroom, struck at, I can't get away from finally having to deal with the words of Scripture that we're going to be reading this morning. And it it was frightening, it was stunning, it was scary, it was kind of exciting. And there's all kinds of emotions that can happen. And therefore, let's slowly pull back so that we can try to see the biblical picture of God's sovereign grace in saving people for the purpose to see if we can grow to rejoice with Jesus in it. So first, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
The first thing that we see is that God's sovereign election, His sovereign choosing grace means that salvation is totally from God. 100% is God's action. And if you are saved in here today, if Jesus is your Savior, if somehow you have been brought to Him and you know that you trust in Him, you believe in Him and His work on the cross for your sins, zero belongs to you in your salvation. Why? So that no one will have any grounds for boasting. It is not 99% God, and then He leaves the last 1% to see if you will ultimately save yourself. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul unfolds the same thing that Jesus is rejoicing in in our text when He says, starting with verse 20, Paul writes, Where is the one who is wise? Remember? He's hidden it from the wise and the understanding. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, now watch. He's going to unfold that now. For, this is how he's unfolding here. For, here's the reality. Paul goes around city to city preaching the gospel of God's Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. He has laid down his life as the substitutionary sacrifice for sins and the penalty of sin. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. And he's coming back again. If you believe, you'll be saved. He preaches this. And watch what he says, starting in verse 22. For Jews, here's, here's what happens. And Paul's a Jew. For Jews, they demand signs. In Greeks, they seek for wisdom. His point here is, the gospel falls on dead ears. They don't believe. And you know what? The Jews in, in the Greeks, and he means Gentiles and Greeks here, he, this is everybody in the world. No one's going to be saved. Except for what he says next. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but, wow, we Preach Christ crucified. Okay, here it is. Yeah, yeah, it's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, so he's just said they preach the gospel and Jews fall flat on their face and they don't believe. And then everybody else in the world, Gentiles, it's foolishness. <laughs> no one's saved. But to the called from among those groups. So therefore, just pay attention to the words. When Paul says, 
but to those who are called. He cannot mean everybody's called. It doesn't make any sense. Because here, everyone who is called among the Jews and the Gentiles, every one of them, to them, what happens is this miracle that Christ personally becomes the wisdom of God and the power of God. In other words, they believe. You see that? Okay, now, just keep reading. Why, Paul? What's going on in God's mind here? Paul says to these called These believers in Corinth, the Christians, he says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. didn't matter who your parents were. But God... Why does Paul use this word? But God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not in order to bring to nothing things that are. Now why? 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 Just keep reading. Here's the answer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. His choice depends on nothing in us who are being saved, but only on His sovereign will. Just keep reading. Paul goes on to say, guys, get it? Verse 30. And because of... What's what's the object of that preposition? Because of what? Because you're smart? Because you're pretty? Because your parents were Christians? Because your parents were Muslims? Because you run fast? Because of what? Because of Him. You are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of God. Why is that so important to you? Verse 31. So that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, the Apostle John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, He makes it crystal clear that those who see and embrace Christ with a heart of faith, it's because of being born again, or the way he says it here, born of God. In John 1, verses 12 to 13, we read, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, that's Jesus, He gave the right to become the children of God. And now, he he wants to make clear that you don't misunderstand him. That is, those who were born not of blood, no matter who your parents were, Jew or Gentile, no, nor those who uh, were born of the will of the flesh, humanity, nor of those who 
were born of the will of man. It wasn't their own will, ultimately. But of God. Those who were born of God's will. James, Jesus' half-brother, says essentially the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 18, when he writes, and I just think, why, James, are you choosing to say it this way? He says, of His, meaning God's own will, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, I've been a Christian for 30 years, so I know the struggle over this. And so many within the church world will say, okay, yes, I hear you, Joe. And I believe, yes, God initiates, He draws people, He influences people, even by the Spirit, with the preaching of the Word. I believe that God, that grace of God comes that way, yet He, he stops at that point, and then at that point, with all his influence, the rest now depends on person A and person B. And sometimes person A then takes that influence and chooses of their own independent, autonomous, self-determining will and believes in person B with the same influence that God gave them, just made the final decision to not believe and ends up in hell. But as we're going to see with what we've seen in other scriptures we will look at, that reasoning just doesn't stand up to the scripture. To start with, one of the most familiar texts to us Christians, it doesn't stand up with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Because Paul, in, in this little passage, he makes it crystal clear that when it concerns salvation, the grace and the faith, both, he says they both are gifts of God. So there's no place for the idea, God's gave a gift of grace, if I could, in a self-determining way, bring myself to faith. Because he says God gives a gift. He says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. That's so true. You're not going to be saved unless you believe. That's right. And then he says in this, that this, the word tuta, is in the neuter. I know it means nothing, but it, 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 normally it's going to have to agree with grace or faith. Both of those are in the feminine. But Paul uses it in a neuter to say he's talking about that whole clause. Salvation, grace, and faith. That whole ball of wax, he says, this is not your own doing. Even your faith. It is the gift of God. Why? Here he goes again. It's not a result of works, so that, here's the purpose, no one may boast. In Philippians 1.29, Paul just seemingly throws it out there. (laughs) And then he says, it has been granted to you, Philippian Christians, it has been granted, given to you, to believe. That's, That's Philippi. 
You remember when Paul planted the church in Philippi in the book of Acts? He's down by the river. And Luke, our writer, Luke makes the comment as Paul's preaching and people hearing the gospel. And he says, And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the message. Why does he say that? I mean, if the Lord opened everyone's heart down there that day in Paul's preaching, it would make no sense to say the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear, really, what Paul was saying. They're just unfolding what Jesus was saying in His earthly ministry. For instance, in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me. How many? None. No one can come to me, Jesus, unless, unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he goes on about 20 verses later to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Others try to say, Yes, I believe in election, which if you're going to be a Bible person, you have to because it's all over the word choose or to elect. So they'll say, I believe in election, but God elects or chooses people based on His foreknowledge. Uh, Meaning, God, because He's God, He's omniscient, there's nothing ten zillion years in the future that will happen that God does not already fully know everything about it. Okay, So God looks down the corridors of time before He ever created the world before He ever sent His Son to die for sins. And He sees who will in the future of their own self-determining will bring themselves to faith. That's His foreknowledge. And therefore, based upon their choosing Jesus, which God knows about, based upon that, God chooses them. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work, for instance, when they turn, and you can see this clause in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes to Christians in all kinds of cities, a big general letter, and he says, to the elect, to the chosen, okay? He says, to the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God. And to make the word foreknowledge there mean whom God foreknew in the future of their own self-determining will would choose Jesus, therefore God chose them, doesn't work. Because the very next verse, Peter makes it crystal clear that the only reason anybody comes to faith is because of God's action in new birth first. In verse 3, 1 Peter, he says, according to His great mercy... He, God the Father, caused us Christians to be born again to a living hope. If you love grammar, which you should as a Bible reader, 
It means the living hope, which is Peter's phrase for saving faith, comes as a result of new birth. New birth produces saving faith, and that's an act of God. Saving faith, people coming to faith in Christ, does not produce new birth. God's choosing is according to His sovereign choice, not according to our choice of Jesus. See, elsewhere, the word foreknowledge in the Bible, or even the word knowledge, you know, Adam knew Eve, had a special meaning there, didn't it? Didn't mean he just knew she was there. Both those words often carry with it a meaning deeper than mere intellectual knowledge. Knowledge or foreknowledge means you're you're known in a special, unique way. Quote, Only you, Israel, have I known. That's what God says. What does He mean? You didn't know other people groups? No. We know that Israel is a chosen people. You, if you want to say, what does He mean? Paraphrase it. Only you have I chosen. Quote, Abraham, I have, and this is how most of your English translations will choose to translate it, I have chosen you. Why did those Hebrew scholars translate it that way? Because they know the word in Hebrew is the word to know. Only you have I known. Meaning in that special choosing Way. Paul writes in Romans 11, verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. When you ask meaning, He means Israel, whom He chose. That's what it often means. So, elect according to God's foreknowledge, it means that He determined before time began to know these particular persons in a special way. In a special way, in order to pour out His merciful love on them according to His mysterious, hidden, sovereign purposes. I want you to turn to Ephesians. Just let Paul speak to us about that. In Ephesians 1, starting with verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes to us Christians saying, Even as He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that what? chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for, for what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What did He do this based upon? According to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace, 
with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 11, he goes on, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Okay, are you a believer? Do you love Jesus as your Savior? You have an inheritance and it's sure. Okay, got this? Okay, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. How come? Paul, how come? Having been predestined. That's a participle in Greek. What do you mean by having been? He means because we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of of His will. What a glorious truth. Because of the counsel of His eternal will. I have a future inheritance. How do I know? Because the gospel came and I believe. And, and I see, oh my, look at that. I didn't deserve it. He just popped my eyes open. One day, look how Paul in Romans 8. If it's important for you, which maybe it should be, to look at the words. Look at Romans 8. See how Paul lays this out. We start with one of the most cherished and precious verses for Christians over the last 2,000 years. Verse 28. And Paul says, we know... Okay, don't you want to know this? Cancer comes all the other pains of life. And we know that for those who love God, well, who are those? That is, those who love God, we know this, all things work together for good. That is, to those, not to everybody, to those who are called, there he goes again, to those who are called according to His purpose. Great verse. Now, the next word is the word for, meaning the reason that verse really stands is because of the truth that Paul puts underneath it right here. And this has been called over the centuries the chain of salvation, of God saving people. Here's why you can trust that believer, is what Paul's saying, for or because whom he foreknew. There's that word again. Now just stop for a second. As you read closely, it is impossible exegetically, meaning taking the words for what Paul meant them to mean. It is impossible to understand God's foreknowledge here to mean whom He foreknew would bring themselves to faith by their own autonomous, self-determining will. I'll show you why. For whom He foreknew, those He also predestined. He also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Now stop. How many of the people that He foreknew will be predestined according to the image of His Son? The answer is all of them. Those whom He foreknew, He did predestine. He predetermined that they will be conformed to the image of His Son 
in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, follow him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. How many of those whom he predestined did he call? Answers, all of them. And those whom he called, he also justified. Okay. How many of those whom he calls are justified? Meaning, their sins are totally forgiven. And as Paul has already argued in this book of Romans, Jesus' perfect human life and righteousness is put to their account. They're saved, they're sealed. That's what justification means. How many of those whom God calls are justified? Say it. All of them. You know from Romans what Paul just said in this letter. No one's justified apart from faith. So we know that all whom He's called come to faith. And we know that not everyone comes to faith. But many die in their sins and perish. And therefore, this call is not the general call for everyone. There is a general call. Believe! And many people hear that message and they perish. That's not the call he means here. He means that very intimate, personal, eternal life granting call. Like when Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus. He's a corpse. And he said, come forth. That's a call. And when he does it to a dead spirit who cannot believe, Jesus' call, it effects, it causes exactly what he's calling for. Well, who does he call? Those whom he's predestined. Who does he predestine? Those whom he has chosen or foreknown. Everyone whom he's called, he's also justified. And those whom He's justified, He's also glorified. That's a future thing in the resurrection. It's one ball of wax. That's why Paul's saying, Romans 8.28, will stand believer in the darkest hours. See, this radically God-centered truth of God's election so permeated the writers of the New Testament. It just wasn't peripheral. It permeated Luke. And Matthew, and John, and James, and Peter, and Paul. They, even, you would think it's almost a throwaway line when they're writing, and there it is again, and there it is again. And it's not a throwaway line. I mean, just for instance, Paul's writing to Timothy, late in his life, close to death and being beheaded. Paul writes to young Pastor Timothy. In the first chapter, the beginning, he's just saying, Hey, Timothy, and then he's talking about God, and he says, quote, in verse 9 of chapter 1, 2 Timothy, God who saved us and, here it is again, called us, that means something to Paul, and called us to a holy calling. And then he feels like he's got to just be clear, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or 
4, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, For we know, brothers, Christians, who are loved by God, we know that He has chosen you. How in the world do you know that, Paul? He says how He knows. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Holy Spirit came on you and you were fully convicted of the truth and you have embraced the gospel. Evidence of what? That God chose you. You read the Bible slowly, it is stunning. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks for God, excuse me, thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and faith in the truth. The New Testament writers by the Holy Spirit are just driving home the point again and again that the human race is not the beautiful, glorious center of all existence. But God is. And that's why Jesus in our text rejoices in that truth. Because it makes it so clear not only in time, but for eternity. There is no place for boasting. Ever in any created being. And trust me, you who are saved, it is our joy. We will see it. If we don't see it now, we will see it then more clearly and know more fully why Jesus rejoices in it. You won't want to be a poster. You won't be able to. He will wipe away all sin. And pride is at the core of all sin. So even now, what he's saying is that if you were converted to Christ at, I don't know, teenager, young 20-some age, and, and you had buddies, and none of you knew Jesus, and you used to party, this is my life, and then and you just changed my life. I believe the gospel, and like me, you... You start reading the Bible to them and bring them to church and then, well, they don't believe. You have no place to say, well, I guess I'm smarter. I guess I'm holier. Because, I mean, that, 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 that's the essence of holiness, isn't it? To understand who Christ is and to believe I'm better than Him because I believe in it. You realize the more God unfolds to us and we read the words and you believe Him when He says, this is how it happened to you, you realize, oh my, I am not better. I am utterly falling on His sovereign grace. Okay, that's the point of our text. And so, Jesus, 
rejoices. I'm back in Luke. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, mean all sovereign one. Thank you for what? That you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And you've revealed them to undeserving little children, babies. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then he goes on. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one in this world, no one knows who the Son is, really, except God the Father. Nor does anyone know who the Father is except for the Son. Oh, and listen to it. Listen to it. Listen to Jesus' words. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal This is Jesus' joy. Jesus praises God the Father for making Him the source of revelation that saves people. You think about this just historically. This man had to go to the bathroom. He had to eat to sustain himself. He had to sleep. He is a genuine human being who was not created. But yet this man just has said, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the eternal Creator, has handed over to me His authority. And the ability to reveal. You talk about a high Christological statement about the God-man. There it is. Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, become a human being. I am the source of revelation. Because only God, in the way He means here, only God knows so fully. God. Only the Son, the eternal second person who at the essence of the triune Godhead, has been enjoying and knowing God fully and unboundedly forever. Only He knows the Father. This knowing that He's talking about is the divine perfect union. The divine knowing. Okay, Then God creates. And He creates this creature called humanity, in His own image, in order that as finite, not infinite, finite beings, they would be able to reflect the knowledge and the knowing of who God is and enjoy Him finitely for His glory. And we have all fallen in sin. We have all been plunged to the depths of our heart in darkness. 
where the candle, the light of knowing God, knowing the Father, knowing the Son, it was not dimmed, but it was blown out. Gone. And thus we're all justly doomed. Except for what we read from the mouth of Jesus in our text. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We are utterly dependent on God to reveal salvation to us. No matter how wise or how smart we may be, no human being can reason themselves to saving faith. Though saving faith contains reason. Because ultimately, it's a heart issue. And our hearts are blind and dead. Listen... Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He writes, The natural person, the fleshly person, here we're going to see, Paul means a person who has not been born again. A person who, in other words, has not had the Holy Spirit come in and reveal the Father in the Gospel to the person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For, why not Paul? For they are foolishness to him or her. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Unless the light goes on, which you can't turn on yourself, by an act of God. See, Paul says, just as a blind person cannot see the beauty of a sunset because he lacks the necessary functioning organs in order to do so, so also a sinner whom Jesus has not yet chosen to reveal the Father to in the truth of the Gospel, that person I use the word carefully, not just won't, but can not grasp the gospel for the treasure that it really is. Not until first Jesus gives sovereignly eternal life to them. Listen to how Jesus prayed again in the Gospel of John in chapter 17 to the Father. Listen to what he thinks in his prayer. John 17, uh, start with verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now hear this. Since you, Father, 
have given to Him, He's talking about Himself, Jesus. You have given to Him, to me, Jesus, authority over all flesh. Now listen to this line. In order to give eternal life. To whom? To those who are six feet tall or above? To Jews? Or just to Gentiles? Black? White? Purple? Bald? To, to those who have reasoned themselves to faith? To those who have brought themselves... You've given me authority to grant a new kind of life, this eternal life of God Himself, to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. And this is eternal life. What is it? That they may know you. There it is. No one knows the Father except for me, Jesus. Oh, oh, by the way, and anyone to whom I choose to reveal Him. This is eternal life. I give eternal life to those whom the Father has already given to me. And when I do, guys, this is what eternal life is. To know you, Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Without spiritual life being given to us, we can no more embrace the Lord Jesus, embrace the truth of the gospel, than a, than a corpse could stand up and give a living person a hug. Can. Do you know the Father? <laughs> Do you know His Son? Has He come and revealed Himself? Not merely to your mind, but by changing your heart to embrace Him. Okay, say, I hope, you, I hope the answer is yes. Now, let, let's just let Paul, Paul come in here and say, Paul, tell us how that happened. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this to us who now have come to saving faith in Christ, starting with verse 1. And, Christian, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, all of us Christians right here today, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, we were by our nature children of God's holy wrath that we deserved. Just like the rest of mankind. Now the greatest words in the Bible. But God... That's who we were. You keep Joe LeMay in that state in which I was for 19 and a half years and say, give him the gospel. Believe and believe that this is the treasure in the field and you're just going to embrace it with joy. Impossible. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us Christians, even, get it, get it, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Here it is. Get the connection. But God what? Made us alive together with Christ. Paul can't contain it. So he's, by grace, have you been saved? Have you ever thought, how is it that 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I'm talking to believers. You believer? How is it that 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 doesn't apply to you? Remember, this is what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, not your case, believer, but in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He says, they can't see it because Satan blinds them. Why do you see it? You know, the answer is the context of Luke and what we've been working through. Guys, I know, I saw Satan fall like lightning out of heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm here. And what He's going to do in Jerusalem on the cross, I have broken His power, His authority to keep you from not seeing. Who? Not everybody. Those for whom He's going to the cross to die. And he snapped Satan's blinding powers over everyone that the Father has given to Jesus. So that, in time and space, differing circumstances in our lives, he'll come and say, Lazarus or Joe LeMay, come forth. Satan has no authority. That's what he was talking about. That's what he says to these chosen 72 Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 doesn't apply to you. Jesus defeated that blinding power. If you just continue on in 2 Corinthians, the next thing Jesus says, I mean Paul says in verse 6, to believers is this. But as for you, God, who said, let there be light, or let light shine out of darkness in creating the world, that very God, what happened? He acted. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus is saying in our text that there is nothing in us that obligates the triune Godhead to reveal Himself to us. It's utterly based on, as Jesus says, to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. God chooses certain individuals and He reveals Himself to them. And they're saved. But, He lets others continue on in their spiritual darkness. He chose Abraham. Why? (laughs) No reason whatsoever outside of God's internal, eternal purposes. 
He didn't choose Abraham's dad. He didn't choose Abraham's neighbors. Abraham was a pagan. He chose him. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He loved Jacob and hated his twin brother, Esau. Wow, he must have been really bad. Do you know what? Okay. God, the Holy Spirit, has Paul say to us in Romans 9 about loving Jacob and hating Esau. Paul makes it clear. He did this before Jacob and Esau were ever born. Before they could actually do anything good or bad. Why, Paul? He says, so that God's purpose in election might stand. It's stunning. The natural cry, the finite, creature-centered, not God-centered cry is this. If unconditional election is true, then that is unfair. It's unfair because it says God chooses some to be saved and not others. Is it unfair? What do we mean by unfair? Is God unjust? The Scripture is clear that God is not obligated to save anybody. It would be perfectly fair, perfectly just for God to not save any human beings. Just like He decided to do with angels. In Second Peter, the Apostle Peter tells us, quote, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, that's what He did. There's no salvation for angels. See, God is would be perfectly just, and He is just in condemning sinners to hell. And if He never, in His hidden purposes, saved anybody, He would be doing no one an unfairness, but it's perfect justice to condemn them. Okay, that's easy. Okay, let's just say then, out of who knows how many billions of sinners, He doesn't save any of them. Except for Billy Bob. Okay, so he saves one. Okay, now is God unjust? Did did that make him unjust by showing mercy in sending his son to save one person? it's, It's not even in the category of justice. Justice will be perfectly done. Don't worry about it. That's just in the category of God's unfathomable riches of His mercy. I want you to turn to Romans. I know it's late. I don't care. I don't. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to... 
I'm going to read, even though it's late, I'm going to, I want to keep myself reading slowly. Romans 9, starting with verse 10, Paul tells us, And not only so, but also Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of what? Because of God who calls. Because of that, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written in the Scripture, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay. He's not done. <laughs> okay. That you feel... Paul knows what we feel. So the next thing he says is what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Here's the answer. No. By no means. What's your argument, Paul? Here's his argument. Because God says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on the tall. On those who are smart enough as sinners to come to faith. No, his argument in quoting the Scripture is, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. End quote. Okay, Paul, what's your conclusion? Verse 8, 16, here it is. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. Verse 18, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. So, that God saves Billy Bob has done no injustice to a person who has willingly continued in their sin and their hardness of heart. Willingly. Following their desires. That's what the human will is. And thus, as we would want a serial murderer, I would hope you want executed. We like justice. God's doing no injustice to punishing us sinners for our sin. Okay, but now, Paul's stopping it. Now, there's another and even a deeper level objection that we people make by saying, okay, okay, I got, I got that, but it still doesn't seem fair. 
I mean, it's not fair for God to create some people whom He knew would sin and then be eternally condemned and whom He knew He would not choose to save. You should feel that. And Paul knew that this was the natural objection to what he was saying. Because the next thing he says, just read on, verse 19, he responds this way. You will say to me then, because of what he's been arguing, then Paul, why does God still find fault? Because if I'm following your logic here, Paul... (laughs) According to you, who can resist God's sovereign will? That's the heart of the unfairness objection. It just goes, if each person's ultimate destiny is determined by God, and not, very clear with my words here, and not ultimately by the person, let me just put this parenthesis in, even though it is biblical, and yes, it is true, that each of us persons make willing choices which determine whether we will be eternally saved or not. I have said nothing that contradicts that this morning at this point. Okay, but here's the argument. Okay, if each person's ultimate destiny is determined by God and not ultimately by the If God's even behind those choices, then how can that be fair? That's the objection Paul hears. And Paul's response is not one that appeals to our radical man-creature-centeredness, pride. He just simply calls on God's rights as the sovereign, eternal creator. Let's read it. Start again with verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault, Paul, for according to you, who ultimately can resist his will? Here's Paul's response. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Okay, there's his analogy. Now Paul applies it. What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, what if He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now watch, there's an in order to that. Paul's saying this is what he's done. But not as an end. There's a greater goal that God's after. In order to make known against that wrath, 
and against God's holiness, to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, just here's the plea. And Jesus pleads this way. In the parallel text, I think it's in Matthew, Jesus said something else at the end of, of our passage. And to whom the Son wills. And He says, To all you who are burdened, you're heavy laden, come unto Me. And if you will, you can. Come unto Me and I will give you rest. So that when you read these words, for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He has called. Not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. When we read these words of Paul, we're confronted with a decision whether to accept what He says or not. This reality this morning, it reaches to the depths of our understanding of ourselves and of our understanding of our relationship to God as our Creator and to Jesus as our Savior. Our Savior said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is what Jesus meant when the Jews demanded of Him in John chapter 10. How long will you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you are the Christ or not, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because... You are not part of my flock. He didn't say you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. He said you don't believe because you are not part of my flock. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice. Maybe you've never heard his voice doesn't mean you can't. He pleads with you. Hear and believe and be saved from the judgment that is to come and experience a joy that is unfathomable to you in Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my Father's hand.
So no wonder Jesus says to us in the larger context of our journey in Luke, Rejoice! Christian, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. We believe, not because we were good or smarter or more holy or better than anybody else who does not yet believe. We believe because Jesus opened our eyes. So as I close, this is the question. Can we, by God's grace, grow in rejoicing in what Jesus rejoices in? This is part of what Christian development, Christian growth, sanctification is. The Lord Jesus turns to each one of us sheep. He looks us in the eyes. That is, to those whom He has chosen to reveal the truth to. He looks at us in the eye and He says, Do you see how wonderful, how deep, how eternally rooted, not in you, but in God, your redemption is? That's what he says. Let me just close by reading it. Verse 23. And then, turning to the disciples... He said privately. Okay, this is not for everyone. These are for the ones He's chosen right here in this context. He said to them privately, you 72 guys, look, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets in the past, they knew this was coming. They knew I was coming. Oh, and they longed to see it. And kings, they desire to see what you see. And they did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. Oh, let's rejoice, believer. And if you're not a believer yet, plead with you. Trust that the one true holy creator who made you has sent his eternal son to become a human being in order to die in your place and bury your sin forever. And He proved it by raising Him from the dead. And He will come back again one day and raise from the dead and glorify all those whom He has foreknown, evidenced by you embracing Him. Let us sing, therefore, with Jesus this great truth. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. These, these words are meaningful here. Joe LeMay, I'll tell you it's true. Not saved, pretty smart guy who figured out you know, how to get to heaven. No, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now, by someone else, I'm found. I was blind. I couldn't see the sunset of Jesus Christ. 
till the miracle of new birth. And now I see. You remember how it happened with you? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Oh, that's a good grace. When you're so aware of your sinfulness. And if there's a God, I'm doomed. Oh, and it was grace. My fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Let's see.